0: Brother Roy Lanier said at this service, we ought to have more singing. Now, you can put any interpretation upon that you want. <laughs> the Bible teaches that we walk by faith. But there's a tendency on the part of man to walk by logic. I heard of this teacher that was hung up on logic. And he kept telling his students that we solve everything by logic. You reach a conclusion by logic. And he emphasized this over and over and over. And he said, I'm going to give you an example, and I want you to solve it by logic. He said, I'm going to name some presidents. So he named Truman, Truman. Eisenhower, Ford, and Kennedy, Bush. He said, now, how old am I? Of course, they figured. and He went over those names of presidents again. He said, now, how old am I? No one stood And Finally, an old boy from the country stood up in the back of the class, and he said, you're 44 years old. That professor said, you're right. Now, he said, I want you to explain to the class how you reached the conclusion that I'm 44 years old. This old boy said, I was reared on a farm. I had a cousin who was kicked on the head by a mule. He was sent to the insane asylum. He was 22 years old when that happened. You're twice as crazy as he is, and that makes you 44 years old. That's (laughs) That's logic. <laughs> if I were given 30 seconds to give the message of Jesus Christ, I'd read Romans fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man cometh to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ, the Bible is called the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter said, Sanctify the Lord God in thy hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Seeing we have such solid faith to build upon, we may cast the anchor of our hope on God's eternal shore and walk through the valley of death, fearing no evil. It was upon this doctrine of hope that Jesus Christ taught the purest lessons known to mankind. I had a preacher friend who told me that he had preached for years and had never understood the word hope until a certain thing happened in his life. He told about his little daughter, who was five years old. He said they'd bought a pony for this little girl. They came home from worship one Sunday, and this little girl jumped out of the car and ran down to the barn where the pony was. And for some unknown reason, this pony child pulled that child almost to death. And he said they took the child to the hospital, and when the doctor came come in the morning, he would ask doctors any hope. And for the first few days, the doctor would say, yes, as long as there's life, we believe there's hope. And he said, I'd feel like I was walking on cloud nine. The doctor says there's some hope. And then he said, I shall never forget that fateful morning when the doctor came in and asked, doctor, is there any hope? And the doctor said, no, there is no hope now. He said, it seemed that the whole world crumbled and fell at my feet. And he said, For the first time in my life I realized what an awful thing it would be to stand in the judgment and hear the Lord say, There is no hope. So this glorious hope that we have is not found in science. It's not found in what we may learn by going to the moon. It's not learning if we know if there's life on Mars. This hope is not found in uh, philosophy or psychology or education or medicine, phenomenology, or the development of the human mind. This hope that the Bible speaks of is found in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ had such love for man that we read in John 15 13 that greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. And yet Jesus Christ laid down his life uh, for his disciples. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one who purchased the church in Acts 20 and 28. When Paul wrote to the elders of Ephesus, said, Take heed of yourselves of the flock, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and feed the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. He is the head of the church in Ephesians 5.23. As the husband is the head of the wife, Christ also is head of the church and is the Savior of the body. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born, the prophets of God wrote about the church and prophesied about the church. Daniel, standing among the ruins of ancient empires, said in Daniel 2.44, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall never be moved. It shall be, shall not be left to other people, but it shall break into pieces all other kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And then in Isaiah, the second chapter, beginning with verse 2, It shall come to pass in the last days the mountain of the Lord's house. It shall be established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And the people say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways, we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then later on, John the Baptist came on the scene. And seemingly the theme of his preaching was in Matthew the third chapter, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that their parents, their grandparents, their great great grandparents have been looking for. John said that time is almost here when that church will be set up, fixed, and organized upon this earth. And then shortly after John uttered those words, we read this time in Matthew the 16th chapter, beginning with verse 13, that when Jesus Christ came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do men say, I, the Son of Man, am? They answered him saying, Some say, that Thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, some Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. But he said unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. Therefore I say unto thee that thou art Christ, and upon this rock, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then shortly after those words were spoken, we read this time in Acts the second chapter. That when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as shake of a mighty wind that filled the house where all they were, wherein they were sitting. There appeared in them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now that's the message concerning the church of the New Testament. That is the church and the only church to read about in the Bible that has the approval of the Almighty God. And Jesus Christ is the founder of it. He is the head of it. He is the establisher of it. And He is the Savior of it. And He is because Jesus Christ has all power. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, he said, I have all power in heaven and on earth. And then in John 1, 3, all things were made by him, and without him there was nothing made that was made. Jesus not only has all power, he has all authority. If you remember when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, at the close of that sermon, they said he spake as one having authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus Christ was great in everything he ever did. He was great in his knowledge. And Mark 2, 8, he says, Why do you reason these things in your heart? And John 2, 25, And he did not any man should testify unto him, because he knew what was in the hearts of all men. And then Jesus was great in his love in John 13:34 and 35 Jesus said I give unto you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you so love you one another and by this shall all men know that you are my disciples as strange as it may seem Jesus Christ never did say that if you will be baptized All men will know that you're my disciples. Well, someone may may ask, are we to be baptized? Of course we are. Jesus commanded baptism. But Jesus Christ never did say, if you'll be baptized, all men will know that you're my disciples. No apostle ever said that. No angel ever said that. And Jesus Christ never did say that if you eat the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, that all men will know that you're my disciples. Well, are we to eat the Lord's Supper? Of course we are. you have examples of disciples meeting upon the first of the week, commemorating the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I repeat, Jesus Christ never did say, if you'll eat the Lord's Supper, all men will know that you're my disciples. Well, now why? Well, the person may be baptized and not be sincere. Why? Well, many times in gospel meetings I've see some individual coming down the aisle, and I would think that this person is a member of the church, and i ask him what his desires are, and he'd say, I want to be baptized. Well, I thought you had already been baptized. And he would say, well, I was baptized because my parents put pressure on me, or I was baptized because uh, uh, someone challenged me. I, I know of a gospel preacher who said the first time he was baptized, he was a young boy in the back of the auditorium. They were the an invitation and said his friends kept nudging him, I'll dare you to go up and be baptized. I'll dare you to go up and be baptized. He said, I went up and they baptized me. Well, he was not sincere in doing that. I've had people come forward and say they had not been sincere in eating the Lord's Supper. So a person may be baptized and not be sincere. He may eat the Lord's Supper and not be sincere. But there is no hypocrisy in true love. Therefore, Jesus Christ said, If you will love one another as I have loved you, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. There is a great famine of love in the world today. There is a great famine of love in the social world. There is a great famine of love in the racial world. There is a great famine of love in the financial world. And in many instances, there is a famine of love even among God's people. And we must realize one of the basic, fundamental principles of living the Christian life is to learn to love. Now, Brother Woodson said last night that it's hard to love some people. Certainly it is. Some people, it's easy to love some people. The first time you meet them, you, as we say, fall in love with this individual. He has such a charming personality. He's so likable. He's so agreeable. Then there are other people whose personality is so contrary to our personality that we have to learn, we have to cultivate a love for that individual. Buster Dobbs had a good article in the Firm Foundation, this last issue on love, that we must love our enemies and we must strongly condemn false doctrine. But if we're not careful, if we're not exceedingly careful, we will let our hatred for sin and our hatred for false doctrine spill over to the place that where we begin to hate the individual that advocates the false doctrine. We must learn to separate sin from the sinner. Christ said, if you will love one another as I love you, by this shall all Men know that you are my disciples, and we need more love in the Lord's church today. We need more love among our brethren, and I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do. It's easy to preach this, it's easy to stand here and talk like this. I'm aware of that, but sometimes it's difficult. But we must learn that as Christians, we must learn to love one another. We may despise his ways, we may despise he practices. But well, we must love that individual soul, and that's what Jesus Christ is saying. If we will learn to love one another as he loved us, then all men will know that we are that we are his disciples. And let me ask you, the average church today, how do the people identify us? Isn't it true that they say, you know who I'm talking about? It's those people that teach that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Or, you know, it, it, it's those people that eat the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. Or, you know, it's those people that do not use mechanical instruments of music in the worship. Now, isn't that about the way that the people of the world identify us? And yet Christ does not give that as the identifying mark. He says, if you love one another as I love you, this pure, genuine love one for another, that the people recognize you as being my disciples. And we need to realize that this is a message of Jesus Christ, and we should learn to practice this. It's wonderful to have the truth. It's the most wonderful thing in the world to have the truth. But we must love those that do not have the truth. We do not love the Arab, we do not love their sin, but we love them. And I repeat, as Brother Woodson said last night, sometimes it's not an easy thing to do. Maybe this is where we need to pray more. In many congregations, we need this love. Even within the congregation. So, Jesus Christ is the greatest person, the greatest teacher the world's ever known. And He's the one who taught these great lessons. And we should try to do the very best of our ability to do these things that Christ has taught us to do. And then, Jesus Christ is the only one who sustains the necessary relationship with God and with man in order to be our Savior. It's for this reason that our parents can't save us. It's the reason no religious teacher can save us. It's for this reason that no angel can save us. It's for this reason no apostle can save us. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul said there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's just one. We have as many gods as we have mediators. We have many mediators as we have gods. There's one God one mediator, and those who go to God go through the mediator. But someone may ask, who or what is a mediator? What is this, the function of a mediator? It's to stand between two who are doubts, two individuals. Just suppose the Brother Roy Lanier and James Rogers should have serious trouble. They're not able to get together. They can't even meet. And they say that uh, we both have confidence and uh, William Woodson. will let him come and talk to us. William Woodson goes to these two men. He talks to them. And through William Woodson, he brings about unity and love between these two men. In that case, he will serve as a mediator between two people who had difficulty Who were out. God and man were out. Man is sent against God. God rejected man. Man cannot even approach God, only through the blood of animals, which was a temporary thing. And now today Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, he's become the one mediator between God and man, and therefore all who go to heaven must go through Jesus Christ the mediator. But someone says, I've always thought going to heaven would be like going to Birmingham. No, going to Birmingham isn't in any sense like going to heaven. But just suppose I ask you or told you there's just one way to Birmingham, then how could you go? Well, some of us you can fly in, walk in, but if there's only one way, how could you go? Well you'd have to say you have to go that way. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that's the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever been able to deal with man's Fundamental trouble sin. The temples of the world lift their steeples toward heaven are side to plea for man's forgiveness of sins. Records digged up the mud of Mesopotamia or the jungles of Mexico show the man was always wept and knelt and prayed because of sin. Sin is the most deceptive thing in all the world. And any person that believes that sin does not carry with it individual and national calamity is as foolish as a man who could believe that a spider's web could keep a huge boulder from rolling down a mountainside. Sin promises a real thing and then cheats with a shadow. Sin promises hell and then gives sickness. Sin promises happiness and then gives sorrow. Sin promises hope and then gives despair. Sin is as treacherous as as Absalom who would do us obeisance and at the same time steal our hearts from God. Sin is as hypocritical as Judas, who would betray us to death with a kiss. Sin is as hypocritical and deceitful as a left-handed Ehud, who would extend his right hand in fellowship and with the left hand plunge a dagger through the stomach. Sin is the worst thing known to man. Sin is worse than the devil because it was sin that made him the devil. And there's only one that can do anything about that. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ for rendering obedience unto him. And the message is that through Jesus Christ we can have our sins forgiven. And I want to give you a little lesson now, a very simple lesson, on how this agent center comes in contact with the blood of Christ, which is the message of Jesus Christ. If you have a pencil, I'd like you to jot these things down, if you will. In Ephesians 1 and verse 7, we read these words: In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. Now we're told here that our sins are forgiven through the blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ. But we don't have the literal blood of Christ on earth tonight. But there's some way, there's some way that the alien sinner has his sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians one seven is not an example of conversion. It's just simply stating the law of God that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. But let us turn and find an example of this taking place. In Acts the second chapter and verse 38, when those, when Peter preached on that day and those people pricked in their hearts and asked men and brethren what shall we do, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very thing that Paul says the blood does, in Ephesians 1.7, Peter says it's applied in baptism in Acts 2 and 38. Another example in Revelation 1, five, Unto Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, who hath redeemed us, and, noticed, and washed us from our sins in his blood. There's some way that the alien sinner has his sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because John says our sins are washed away in His blood. But we don't have His physical blood on earth. His literal blood is not here, but yet our sins are washed away in His blood. Well, let us find this is, as a state. This is not an example of conversion. That's just stating the law of God. Now, let us find an example of this taking place. In Acts 22 and 16, when Ananias came to the of Tarsus, he said, And now why tarest thou? Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. The very thing that John says the blood does, Ananias says, is applied in baptism in Acts 22, 16. That's the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, telling man how to have his sins forgiven. Let me give you another example. In John 19 and... And and four, when Jesus Christ hanged on Calvary's cross, and when the Roman soldiers came to break the bones in his legs, which was accustomed to hasten death, the soldier realized that Jesus was already dead. And of course, he didn't break the bones in his legs. He didn't realize that he was fulfilling prophecy that had been uttered a hundred years before that not a bone in his body would be broken. And so this Roman soldier stepped back and took his spear and injected it in the sight of Jesus Christ and forthwith came out blood and water. Now I want you to know how, notice how beautifully Paul writes about this in Romans the 6th chapter. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that many of us have been baptized in Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, Therefore, we bear with him by baptism into death, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. And then in Hebrews the ninth chapter in verse fifteen fourteen, Paul said uh, talks about how much more shall the blood of Jesus Christ, through his eternal Spirit, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's some way a person's conscience is purged by the blood of Jesus Christ. But I repeat, we don't have his literal blood on earth tonight. But so the question is, how then are sins purged by the blood of Jesus Christ? That is, a conscience made pure or clean. Well, let us find an example. In 1 Peter 3.21, Peter said, The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not to putting away the filth of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. And I was reading the other day from some denominational scholar that where he said, talking about 1 Peter three twenty one that it's impossible to separate salvation from baptism when you read 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. So this is the message of Jesus Christ. And then in the conclusion, Jesus Christ, is the only one that has ever proven to man that there's life beyond the grave. Abraham looked for a city whose building and miracle was God, but no one had ever proven to Abraham that there was such a city. Job asked, if a man die, will he live again? But no one had ever proven to Job that man would live again. But we don't ask that question today. Why don't we ask that question? Because Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on Calvary's cross that we might be saved and was raised from the dead. In fact, there's stronger evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is of the conquest of Alexander, Caesar, or Hannibal. Both are historical facts. One changed the government of Rome. The other changed the destiny of the world. And thus, with the prints of the nails in hand and the mark of the spear in his side, he arose from the grave. For instance, can you feature an elderly dying Christian lifting his cold hand and pointing his chilled finger to the landscape, skirting his home, and then saying farewell? his farewell forever. Or saying to these who are standing around his bed, who are fast receding from his presence, it's said, farewell is farewell forever. Or to take the hand of this one who's walked by his side from vigorous youth to both are old and gray, and then saying, farewell is farewell forever. Or can you feature some widow, maybe at this very hour, in some faraway country, on the battlefield where some foolish person had exploded a bomb, hundreds of people had been killed. Can you feature her searching among the mutilated dead for a husband? Tell her that there is no resurrection, and you've saddened her life. Tell the mother that baptized her boy with blessings, watch him go up to the bloody front where he died and was buried, uncoffined, without a vine to go over his grave or rock to set the head of his grave as a marker. You tell the mothers, the fathers, the boys and the girls of the world, there is, there is no resurrection. There would be a universal freak that would rend the air and crack the vault of heaven until the angels would weep and God would hear and the old earth would put on weasel mourning like Rachel of old go down to the judgment week for her children. And so the glorious message of Jesus Christ is simply this. I want you to believe on me. I want you to repent of your sins. I want you to confess my name before men. I want you to be baptized into my body in order to have your sin forgiven. I want you to live a faithful, dedicated life. And if you do this, Then you can live forever and forever with all the righteous, all the good people, of all ages of the world. What a wonderful, wonderful message it is to know that through Jesus Christ we can have our sins remitted and live with him and all redeemed forever and forever.